Welcome to the Boardrooms Best, the podcast for CEOs, board directors, investors, leaders, and those who want to rise and serve in the boardrooms of public, private, family-owned, charitable foundations, and exciting high-flying entrepreneurial companies. I'm Nancy May, the CEO of the Boardbench Companies, and I'm your host here today at the Boardrooms Best. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to the Boardrooms Best. I'm Nancy May, your host, and I'm here today in Randall, New York, the Big Apple, with my good friends, Michael Katsky and Henry Morgenbesser. Katsky and Morgenbesser. If you're among our CEO and CXO listeners, it's time to listen up as these are the guys that you need to go with when you're accepting a new position, when your compensation is in question from the board, when you're promoted from within, and maybe a few years later on, you figure, hey, wait a second, something's a little out of balance, or when you're actually leaving a company and deciding to go on to your next gig, or just something else. Whatever your situation may be, these are the tigers that you need in your camp to make sure you're taken care of on all levels. Yep, this show is all about you today. With that, let's get going. Henry, you and I have known each other for for a while now, and you should know that I tell everybody about you guys, predominantly for, for two reasons. One, because I don't think that when you are in a leadership role, that when you have to represent yourself... It becomes personal for the first time, and typically you are representing the company, and now you need to really understand what your value and your worth is in the marketplace, and that's not easy for any of us to do for ourselves. So why don't we talk a little bit about how that works in your environment and what CEOs really need to consider first when going into a role or a change in roles in a company? Much of our work in the CEO and C-suite executive space, and we are hired by our clients to act, in essence, as an intermediary between them and either the compensation committee, the board as a whole, or sometimes a particular executive at the company, for instance. They may be negotiating with the CEO for a position in the C-suite, but not necessarily a C-suite. Right. And you're not position. necessarily representing the board, per se. You're really no, representing we're, we're the executive. on the individual side. We, right. uh, we started our practice about five years ago, uh, having been partners at, at big firms in the city in New York. We hadn't really intended to just represent individuals, but the way the practice has morphed over the last four or five years, it's almost exclusively uh, an individual representation. As Michael will tell you, he had a brief background uh, in social work and decided that actually our clients need the social work skills as much as our legal skills. I'm not surprised. Uh, But oftentimes we get brought in after the numbers have already been determined. We might very well uh, be told, here's the, the compensation package. Sometimes we're asked to, to kind of give them a second opinion on that, you know, either us or in conjunction with a compensation consulting firm to help them out. But more often than not, they have a good sense as to what the numbers should be. And what they want us to do is help them negotiate the contract because a lot of the key terms are not monetary issues per right. se. It's uh, restrictive covenants at the back end as far as post-employment restrictions. As we'll talk about a little bit, it could be other provisions that relate to uh, golden parachute taxes, that sort of thing. And that's where we tend to deliver a fair amount of value. Uh, Going to your question uh, or your statement earlier about where do uh, executives get value from us, uh, it's really, I say, more the, the substantive provisions of the agreement than the numbers. But we do on occasion actually give them some support on that. Uh, just by way of example, we have a conference call this afternoon with a CEO candidate for a company uh, who's already a CEO at another company, 
And one of the things we're helping this person with is to look at peer compensa uh, compensation in the peer group to help this person determine whether the offer that he's in the process of formulating with the compensation committee is in the range of reasonableness. So we well, and peer group doesn't necessarily always mean that's what you bring to the table from a value perspective. Is that correct? Because you may have actually increased significant value for a previous company, and your peers may not have necessarily done that. Yeah, uh, yeah, that, that's true. I mean, a peer group can only go so far. And um, what was it? Garrison Keller's uh, everyone, uh, Lake Wobegon, and everyone is at... Everyone the, is uh, beautiful and yes, everybody's yes, above yes, average, and, right? And, you know, so sometimes we see uh, CEOs trying to put an overemphasis on a peer group. Sometimes uh, we find uh, even more often the comp committee trying to bring down a CEO, mm -hmm. proposed CEO. They're trying uh, to save money, right? By saving money and saying, well, we only want to pay at the 50th or 60th percentile. Often, interesting, we had a very uh, difficult set of circumstances last summer was where a comp consultant came to us. We were representing an internal candidate who was moving from the president-CEO position to a CEO position, and we got on the phone with this comp consultant who said, we don't believe a lawyer should be involved here. Ooh. And we had just gotten through like three or four other instances where we did represent internal candidates who were becoming the CEO. We were involved. We added what uh, we thought was great value to the process. And this uh, particular comp consultant said, well, the board doesn't want to, you know, Mr. Mr. X is already in the role at the company. The board doesn't want to hear from a lawyer. And he's already making so much. So why should we really significantly increase? The right. Well, he had, what was interesting is this particular individual had come over only about a year before and okay. didn't really negotiate strenuously. Did not negotiate. Did so. not negotiate okay. that strenuously. He was coming in at the president level. Uh, the incumbent CEO was, was pushed out a year later. And they really resisted having us there. They said the comp committee would be upset about it. So we ended up in the shadows, I think, and, and added a lot of value, but just being behind the scenes and not putting uh, our faces forward. So you actually get in front of the CEO when there is a negotiation. You're not necessarily behind the role coaching the CEO, per se, on... Most of the time, that's correct. On occasion, we are asked not to take a front and center role, and we will act in the shadows and give them strategy, give them script as to what to say. More often than not, by the time we are brought in, they are ready to have us engage with counsel. Now, counsel could be... Are they being the individual? The individual. Right. I'm sorry. Counsel could be the general counsel of the company, which creates its own problems when you've got a CEO who, or a future CEO negotiating with the person who's going to report to him. Most general counsel don't want to be in that role. Different and level they'd of rather contention. have external yep. counsel involved. Uh, in that process. But every so, and the one that Michael just alluded to, we did happen to have the general counsel sort of in the middle of the whole thing, acting as a uh, as an intermediary, but, but understanding full well that he had both the existing CEO, the new CEO designate, and the compensation committee all as his constituents. So he tried not to be too Who do you report involved. to, right? But he was, he was impressing on the compensation consultant that this was the base contract for which this new CEO was going to have all future contracts based off of as a foundation, and that it was important for this new CEO to get his contract right, and so impressed upon him that we should have a seat at the table, or a voice at the table. Uh, as it turned out, although we didn't really have an active set of discussions with the compensation committee, some of the things that we had pitched to the compensation consultant were ultimately adapted 
uh, adopted rather by the uh, the compensation committee in the new contract. So we, we scored our points, even though we weren't as active as we would have preferred to be. So so how uncomfortable do boards or their outside comp advisors feel? I mean, it's not a comfortable position for somebody to be doubting what they're putting on the table for this they racehorse that they want to bring to right. the Right. They to understand, the barn. though, that there will be pushback. And most of the... Um, of the board members uh, are CEOs themselves or have been CEOs. So I they've think been they, through yeah, this. Yeah, they, they understand what they've gone through and, and they understand the value. And I think a lot of them... Although it's different when you're on the other side of the table. Now you're serving a different set of masters, right? right? Although I think they appreciate that they don't want to get into hand-to-hand combat with their their future CEO because they'd rather keep their conversations at arm's length and have an intermediary to take sort of the body blows. And they're like, riding their future as board members on a CEO that correct. they really want to perform correct. as well. Uh, the other interesting dynamic we've uh, we've encountered a couple times is our very young CEOs. One of them was, uh, was a, a young female CEO going in with a very difficult chairman. Another was a younger man going in also with a very difficult New York-based chairman. And that's where sort of the psychological hand-holding uh, can occur where we got the reaction, I can't work. I can't work for this person. It's going to be too difficult. It's going to be a very unmanageable situation. The incoming situation. CEO the, felt the incoming uncomfortable. The was, was, was concerned about the potential chairman that, that he or she would have to work for. The hand-holding was, look, this is a great start for you. It may be a difficult couple of years. It's a learning curve, right? But it's a learning, and you'll be able to be able to have your seat at the table in a, in a CEO position. It's worth doing, and both of them ultimately uh, went ahead with that. The old adage, no pain, no gain. And they're both right. still employed, which is, we weren't At the same companies sure. or? Different companies, different companies. But, but they've had their step up and an opportunity to grow into That's absolutely correct. Yeah. But, uh, you know, this is one of the situations where, you you know, in, in many cases, we have a 55-year-old CEO who's making a career transition to another company, and they've been in a CEO or COO role at a major company. So it's easy for them to slot into the new company because they know exactly what they're getting themselves into. Right. When you have somebody who's in their late 30s, early 40s, who suddenly has been off for whatever reason has been offered a CEO position, it's a different psychological uh, impact for them. And just, un, you know, they don't have the assurance of 20 years of, of track of record uh, and making decisions and being able to stand up to board members and, and you know, doing the right thing and, and not being necessarily uh, bulldozed by somebody yeah. who's got grayer hair than Or to do. become a puppet of somebody else, which is not right. what you want your CEO no. to become. You want your CEO right. to be a leader. Right. And you're know, going back to what we were talking about before, acting as intermediaries, I mean, one of the key things we're able to do is we can push their agenda economically or, or whatever the, the substantive provisions of the contract are without having it ascribed to them. So we take the fall. If, if we push something hard and the board doesn't go for it, well, it's those idiot lawyers that we're pushing and not the CEO <laughs> themselves. So that's actually, I mean, it's, it's good to have a scapegoat. As, as silly as that sounds, it actually, you know, is important to a lot of our clients not right. to be the ones having any kind of hostile discussions before they've even started the relationship. It's just, it's not a good way to start off, obviously. So, I mean, not that our discussions get hostile, but we do take strong positions you on You want to be firm, right? And, and you're just, one of the areas that we push on with new hires, not somebody who's coming up internally, but we worry a lot about the golden parachute taxes and a lot of the companies that nowadays every company's in play. There isn't really any company that's too big, really. One of the things that we've pushed for on many occasions, and and much to our chagrin, almost never succeed, is the idea that uh, we worry about golden parachute excise taxes. 
And that tax is based on a five-year W-2 history. And with the new hire, there is no W-2 history. Ah. And there's no... Clean slate. We have, you know, when you're in the company and you've got equity grants, you can actually make, you know, play some games with the numbers legally to exercise options or have certain compensation paid that will boost your W-2 compensation that will insulate you from the tax. When you're a new hire, you don't have the benefit of that. So we oftentimes ask for some sort of sunset provision where for the first two years you'll be protected with a gross up if it ever gets to a point where there's a change of control in those first two years. Uh, we haven't succeeded at that. <laughs> Most boards are worried about ISS and they, they're not going to be willing to do it. Never say never, right? But never say never. We ask for it. And if the board says, or the compensation committee says, no, so be it. It was the lawyers that asked for it. and, and Well, and at least you tried. And there are some other creative methods that you can use to help. And of course, bringing in a new CEO or bringing a CEO up the ranks, you really don't want those people to feel disgruntled. You want to feel, want them to feel valued and excited. And compensation is one way to do it. There's certainly other ways to do it too. Right. When you, when you speak about feeling valued and compensation, we also have seen a bit of a pay disparity, I'd say, between internal hires versus external hires. And it's like the, the old Dilbert cartoon where anyone who's an outside person is, is automatically deemed, child. <laughs> is deemed superior and smarter than the people you already have. And I think we found that external candidates tend to more often get employment agreements and greater protection and even better pay than internal candidates who've grown through through the ranks. It's almost like, okay, we're doing you a favor. We're moving you up from CFO or president to CEO. Now prove yourself in the bigger, in the bigger role as opposed to someone who they've grabbed from company X to come over and they view that as a more of a sea change for the organization. GE is one who's known for doing that over the years and bringing, I mean, among other companies, there are big ones like that. Yes. I, I mean, and to, to take the other side of the, uh, of the lifespan of an executive, we re- recently represented a C-suite executive, not a CEO, who was being pushed towards retirement. And that person said... Because of age or just... Age and, and, and it was partly that they need fresh blood, you know, you, which is oftentimes a, you know, a, a buzzword a trigger, for age right. discrimination. But in this particular case, it's an industry that needs some, some turnover and, and some fresh kind of look at things. And the person said to us... And there was no contract that, that dictated what their, uh, what their entitlement might be on retirement. But they said, look, I don't want to feel like a chump. I think those were the exact words that were used. Mm, you know, I can and understand so we that. were brought in to basically tell that person, based on our experience, what they're offering you is sufficient or not. And so, you know, it wasn't sufficient in the first instance. And, and one can argue whether it ever was fully sufficient by the time we were done, but it was far more close to sufficiency than it was when we right. started. So a lot of our clients, you know, they don't want the, the last dollar. They don't want to squeeze the compensation committee or the board to the point where it crosses a, a line of, uh, of relationship decency. But they do want to be in a range that they feel they're, you know, it's reasonable. Uh, and as Michael was just saying, I think when you have an internal promotion and you're looking at what does the current CEO make, all right, they want to slot me at some percentage below that, either because the candidate is younger, they have less experience. You can than the go current into CEO. the role there, and the money. There's usually a runway to get back to where the current CEO is, and and part of the negotiation is: are we talking about two years or ten years or something in between that? You know, w- what is a reasonable period uh, to do that? And part of that is a, also a function of how revered this the current CEO was. If the person was inefficient then maybe that person was being overcompensated and the compensation committee is somewhat hesitant to bring the next person up to that level. They've had some you know, bad taste in their mouth. 
sometimes the person's beloved and, and they've done a great job and they're saying, well, why should this 48-year-old start Who starting is this? at the same yeah, level as the 62-year-old yeah. who's now retiring? So every situation's different. What happens? And, and, and to, to just check one of the more interesting ones, you talk about the, the person being beloved. We represented someone from a retailer about five, four or five years ago who I think was beloved at that retailer, retired, went to another, another company? company that went bankrupt and then went back to the retailer with a big package that was all incentive-based and ISS, uh, Institutional Shareholder Services, right. was, was likely going to have a hard time with those incentives, but he wanted that because he thought that would be the way to get value. And ultimately, after a very, very difficult negotiation with, uh, I think, Proskauer was on the other side, that company went bankrupt. What happens with, let's say, a, a company and a board and, and a group of CEOs, and the, the board has been through five or six CEOs in five to 10 years? They put an awful lot of time and money out into their CEO packages and trust what they thought on the next rising star, whether it be internal or external. And now you've got a board that's a little gun shy, for lack of better description, right? And supposedly the next big superstar. That negotiation is going to be a lot more difficult, I'm going to presume. That's probably right for a number of reasons. One, if you're looking at it from the candidate's perspective, it's what has this board you know, done wrong over the last half dozen right. candidates? Right. What kind of mud pie am I right. walking you into? Know, and and is, it, is it the candidate that they're getting the wrong candidate or is this company beyond redemption in right. essence? You're going to certainly want you know, downside protection in that scenario for severance, whatever. That's a reputational issue too. And then the compensation committee, of course, is having paid out a number of packages is probably going to be somewhat hesitant to have a revolving door where they're just paying out two to three times base and bonus every time somebody passes through. Whose fault is that? But I think, you know, looking at it rationally, you know, I think that's a pretty easy story to to tell to the comp committee as to why you need protection in that scenario. Right. I would, of course, tell the client, you know, Make sure this is absolutely the the right company for you. Um, and some, you know, look, some people like the challenge. I mean, they think you know, their people think their skill set is such that they've got the right skills that the last three CEOs have not had. Um, sometimes they're right, sometimes out. they're not. We'll probably talk a little bit about uh, you know the difference between the internal promotion versus the external hiring. You know, from our perspective, I think the external hiring is a lot easier in the sense that um, you're starting with a clean slate. You have a sort of a package of goods that you've been provided at your existing company that you at least want to replicate and and hopefully improve on financially and also as far as protections in the the downside. And you can tell a a compensation committee or, or the executive recruiter, here's my minimum ask. And if you're not interested, fine, I'll stay right where I am. It's very different in an internal promotion where you're basically continuing to get what you already got. Um, we will oftentimes, and we did it last summer with one of these internal promotions, we pointed out, in fact, I think with, with two of the ones we did, we pointed out a specific set of shortfalls in the, in the program. In one case, I think they had a very short employment letter with a severance agreement that we thought these two agreements didn't necessarily mesh very well, and we thought it would be much more cohesive to have it all in one agreement with other features and built in. And at first, they resisted it, but ultimately, they came around to it. But there's a very limited uh, scope as to what you can change off of an existing set of uh, arrangements. Another thing that we look at constantly is the change of control provision. And oftentimes, we find it's 10 years old, and it's not you know, a current form. For instance, um, 
one of the things we often ask for is in looking at uh, proxy fights, for instance, with an activist investor, if they get a number of new people on the board, are those considered people who came in through a hostile transaction? Or if the board has acquiesced, ultimately, are those friendly um, successors to the existing uh, board? Uh, I think the state-of-the-art change of control provision would say that they're treated as a hostile change uh, in determining whether the board has turned over significantly to the point where it is a good reason to terminate. And if you look at you know a company, you say we'd like to change or change your control provision to accommodate the new CEO. They're going to say we're probably not going to do that because we have that in our equity plans, we have it in our equity award agreements. So you have to change everything. You have to. We tell our candidate, you know, there's a problem here, but wait till you get in as CEO and you now have the trust of the compensation committee and the board and do it from the you know from your new role as CEO. Don't push it now. So you're already in as CEO now, and you have an opportunity to go back a year later or whenever that might be and say, look, I'm not too comfortable with this. Let me review uh, my contract and discuss it. And here's why, because now things have changed in the board. I know who the people are. I know where the power and the strength is and what sort of challenges we have going ahead. And if, in fact, they're doable. Yeah, I think, uh, unfortunately, I think that often never happens. I think that that the CEO gets in and he or she immediately gets confronted with a thousand other issues. And And they're so focused on doing whatever they have to do. And the big law firm that's on the other side doesn't want to change a lot of what's already in there because it's a little embarrassing if it didn't work. And I think one of the candidates we had where we said we were going to change, I think, unfortunately, that fellow got fired like within 18 months. So he didn't (laughs) didn't get a chance. So was uh, that because of what was happening inside the company and their leadership or it it wouldn't necessarily have to do with a contract negotiation? No, no. He just it just ultimately was not the right right fit. He come from an aggressive pharmaceutical company to another one where I guess he was number two and he went to become number one at this other smaller uh, entity and ultimately he just wasn't the right fit. To to touch on, uh, again, the internal versus external, I think what boards do realize is that an external hire is almost by definition a far more expensive hire because individuals who are coming from another entity will all have unvested compensation, unvested equity that has to be made up somehow. And that is ultimately often a five, ten, fifteen, it could be even twenty million dollar number. We're we're involved now with potentially an interesting one where a very well regarded individual possibly may make a move and, and his or her equity is underwater. And so mm. the question is if you have stock options that have no actual value, value. what we call intrinsic value, should that be valued by the new, the new company with some things because it has a black shoals value. So it could Plus be an interesting Plus you're leaving discussion. the company. Now you had expected that. And right. there are some other issues. I mean, do you take that as a loss of going out? Right, exactly. And that it becomes a difficult issue. And again, you know, with the new, the new CEO uh, coming from an external, there's also the issue of a culture fit. Sure. And frankly, nobody knows, much like mergers, nobody really knows if that culture is going to work until somebody has been there 6, 12, 12 months. Although it's interesting to look at how CEOs working from one type of company, you mentioned a very aggressive larger company to a smaller firm, that in in itself is backlog of experience that a CEO has that in many cases, it's difficult for them to make that adjustment to a a different kind of smaller, uh, maybe a little bit more um, uh, trepidatious type of company that doesn't know how to get out in front of the value or the strategy that the CEO really wants to execute on. 
Right, it can cut both ways. I mean, they they may find that it's more entrepreneurial than at their old company where everything kind of plotted along and and there was you know committee approvals and and, and they like. don't know how to catch up or they could right and and it depends on the situation. But I think most of our CEOs go in with their eyes wide open and they they we fully, hope so they fully know what they're getting into. The other point I would just raise off of what Michael said was with the external candidate being more costly. We talked about the underwater options, but we have the flip side to that, which is what if you have a lot of value in your equity, but it's unvested? When you're bringing in that candidate, you have to replicate the the equity that they've left behind. Uh, and we've seen it as high as, I think, $18, 20000000 million of equity mm-hmm. having to be matched by the, the new company. So the, the, the new employer has to be pretty sure that they've got the right candidate because on top of the normal grants that they're going to have to make going forward, they've picked up the historical equity uh, that was left behind. I mean, the, you know, the, a big hurdle for many companies. The, you know, the, the most famous, I think, case was Jack Welch when he had three potential successors and they gave them each a, a, an Uber equity grant. Um, and what Jack Welch told his uh, board or comp committee was, we're only going to have to pay for one of the three. The other two will get picked up by somebody else and all of the equity will transfer over to the new, Not our new problem. employer. Not our problem. And that's, in fact, what, what did happen. Um, A rather interesting strategy for an outgoing CEO. Right. And then the other place where we see you know, the cost of the external candidate is supplemental pensions. Now, those are a dying breed, and you don't see as many defined benefit arrangements. But there are supplemental pensions out there. And if somebody's leaving mid-career, uh, they're either walking away from unvested supplemental pension or the subsidy from you know, early retirement that the new employer has to make up. And that oftentimes can be a seven-figure pickup by the new employer. So adding to the cost of that external hire. So I'm, I'm going to ask both of you this other question. In the news, and since we're in proxy season right now too, is the, the big dispensation between the bottom of the barrel in a company and what they're paid and what the CEO paid. So what's, what's the difference between the median worker and that CEO? And, and how much of that kind of discussion actually gets into your your uh, work. Yeah, I, I don't think we've we've seen that. Now, a lot of that may be baked in in, in just the offer, but it, it really hasn't come up that much in our uh, in, a, in our discussions. Yeah, what I would say on that, and I've talked to some lawyers at some of the, the other firms who represent the companies themselves, is that most people have seen the proxies. They know what the CEO makes. They can do their own calculation. They don't need the pay ratio disclosure to tell them that the CEO is making you know multiples of, of your average worker. Where it, we understand it comes up is with the labor lawyers, for instance, who have to negotiate with the unions, um, and also just you know with the HR people who have normal day to day discussions with their workforce as to why you know the executives are so highly compensated relative to. Uh, the union employees, whatever. So it falls on the HR professional more than the CEO. I, I think and the they, PR and the communication department correct. and how they're keeping that relationship with the street or just just the market in general. Yeah. One of the more interesting, though, the dynamics in these negotiations is how hard for us to push on severance entitlements. Because much like when you're getting married, you don't want to spend too much time with a prenup because you don't want to anticipate. You want to go uh, into the marriage feeling happy and, and it's an sunny interesting and everything's thing because be good, we, right? we, we often get into a discussion with our client. Well, do we push on your bonus multiple up front or do we worry about if the severance should be 1x or 2x? When the tornado and a lot of the, hits. And a lot of them will say, you know what, I don't want to have the impression that I don't, they don't think I'm going to make it and they don't want to 
push too too hard on that. And it's it's, it's a psychological play on both sides, right? I mean, you also want to go in thinking and knowing that you're competent to handle the situation as well. That's correct. And, and the other sort of uh, offshoot of that is where you have two internal candidates being considered for the CEO position, for instance. And we were involved in one about two years ago um, in counseling our executive. Uh, the question was, you know, how much do you want to push for severance if you're not the anointed uh, designee for the CEO position? Or is that a sign of weakness to suggest that you're expecting the other person to get the nod? And that's, in fact, what happened. The person did not want to push very hard on the what ifs. As it turned out, that person did not get appointed CEO and then had to start a negotiation elsewhere with, with less leverage at that point yeah. uh, with, the, with the existing employer as to, you know, how long will they stay at the company? What kind of package will they be given to leave? And it was not, I don't think, as, a, as beneficial as they had expected. But, you know, had they gone in with that up front, they might have been uh, discounted as far as uh, the race went. Do either one of you see any difference on how women and minorities actually negotiate for CEO positions at all? Or is there any question on that? From my, this is Henry. From my experience, I would say the women are are just as tough negotiators as the men. Now, maybe, I'm glad to hear maybe that. Maybe we just we get a tough <laughs> bunch of broads. I don't know, but but I think um, we've had. I mean, uh, unfortunately, it's a, you know societal thing. We haven't had that many minority CEO candidates. We've had them in, in all sorts of positions uh, in the C-suite, but you know, just a handful of uh, CEO candidates. I can't say that I could discern any particular trend, you know, one way or another. I think when you get to that level, I think you pretty much been driven, you know, and you've been, A, you've been successful at what you do and B, you're not shy about asking for things. It's a different kind of DNA when you I, get to I that. I think so. Yeah. I mean, you know, look, we've had passive 55 year old white males and we've had <laughs> passive women too. Um, but I think by and large, most of them, they know exactly where they want to end up and they're not going to take the position if they don't get it. Well, and I bring it up because it has been front and center in the news in the past on what some of these top performing women have been. Uh, yeah, I paid. think once you get to the level of CEO and the types of clients that we've been uh, representing as CEO or actual CEOs or CEO candidates, distinction between genders has already been muted because she has already made it to that level. Where we've seen it, I think, more often are like financial and bank terminations, where all of a sudden you see a very capable, very strong woman who's made it only so far, and then bangs her, her head into Below the C-suite level, what we're talking about are key executives who may be running a business unit or a division, but not necessarily- At, at a CEO suite, yeah. Right, and yeah. so they've then all of a sudden they found themselves banging their heads into a glass ceiling- they found out, and there's been there've been some uh, fairly no, well-known lawsuits where they've all of a sudden found out once they start digging in with depositions, they've been underpaid versus their male colleagues. I think that's a little a little less pronounced in the C, in the CEO. Uh, but that actually area. starts early on in the career. It's not all of a sudden mid-level that they're they're not getting paid Correct. well. I mean, we've all been taught over the course of our career that you aim high at the beginning, and the more you negotiate. At least that's what I was always told in my career. The more you negotiate back and forth, the better off you're going to be. If you just take the first offer, chances are they're going to think they actually gave you an offer that was too low to begin with. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's a little bit like buying a house. Yeah. What's also interesting is when we represent CEOs, particularly new CEOs, we almost have a sense, and I hate to say this, as to whether he or she is actually going to make it. Right. It's kind of interesting because you could tell, even in the negotiation process, is this person tough enough to stand up to the ultimate rigors of uh, of the position? And 
you sort of get a, a get a feel for it. And look, CEOs. There have been a lot of uh, dynamic company that companies that have spawned out. A lot of CEOs like GE sure. under Jack Welch as his all his disciples. Now you're seeing Jamie Dimon at J.P. Morgan with all Some his disciples yep. go, going off. But it's sort of like a Bill Belichick or a, a Bill Parcells in football, where all the assistant coaches are now becoming head coaches. Some of them make it, and some of them. But some that's of them also flounder. a great legacy for a CEO to be able to say, "I have actually been the one who have brought along this talent, and they're the ones who are strong enough to carry the torch forward, whether it be at my company or somebody else's." I would also say our, our what I think our most successful CEOs look forwards and backwards, or upward and, and downward, and that. They view their legacy as important to their own uh, not know, just the company, tenure. but the the talent that, that the talent they bring that around follows them. up behind them. Do they have the right people behind them when they go out, whether they leave voluntarily or not? And and hopefully it's voluntarily mm-hmm. they retire. But and a company is only as good as the people. Right. I don't care what you're selling and you're building. Right. But, but we have a surprising number of uh, of CEOs who are either getting pushed out or or leaving voluntarily who say that for whatever reason the board has you know buried its head in the sand and and has no succession plan which in this day and age is pretty shocking because it happens you know outside investors are looking for that succession plan and it's something that they expect you know that at any given time in someone's career that there is a succession plan in place whether it's because someone keels over at their desk or because they get a, a different position, whatever. But there should be a, an emer- you know, a, a plan B, A and B. Right. Um, and it's not cover- their day job, but it should be more of their day job, really, and not versus yeah. compliance and other regulatory issues. We had one CEO who was about 68 years old who ended up being asked to stay on for two years because the board had no succession plan. And he actually uh, came to me and said the board has asked him to develop a succession plan, which was highly unusual and, and not right. really um, a best practice. Um, Correct. And we said, look, we'll, we'll give you the parameters of what to do, but this is ultimately a, a board process. You should not have the CEO be the one determining how you replace him. Uh, and that's, in fact, what happened. We, you know, we did sort of phase one of it, and then we handed it over to them and said, now it's your turn. You have to And you to hope that those stuff. people are going to be able to rise to the challenge to actually do the job properly. Correct. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, and, and it's a process of looking at internal and external candidates. Uh, we see, I think, in the private equity world, you know, as soon as they acquire the company, they're thinking about succession plan because they may not want to keep the current They CEO may take around. out the whole management right. team altogether. And we've had that very recently on one where... Uh, uh, the number two person was given sort of a six-month look and then ended up not getting the position. But the private equity firm was very proactive as to uh, looking at external candidates and maybe even internal uh, yeah. to some extent. Yeah, it's it's actually, we, we do a lot of in, in this practice, probably more so than we thought, private equity acquisitions of, of both public and private companies where we end up representing both the CEO as well as uh, his or her lieutenant. It's, 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 a, it's a much different... Dynamic. The the cash compensation is much lower typically in in those types of deals, but the equity upside the is, opportunity, mu- is much higher. Providing you've got a, a great success, right. and that's the role of the CEOs to make that success. And, but it's also it's it's interesting because some CEOs are more comfortable not having to deal with quarterly earnings, which you do as a public company CEO have to worry about. On the other hand, private equity bosses are not the easiest every Friday. people. Not the, right. <laughs> so it may not be Forget public, quarterly, but it's, it's, every Friday. it's a constant. It can be a constant uh, uh, haranguing. And it's very interesting. We just represented uh, a female CEO who was in a – there was literally a bidding war for this company, and the management pool kept going up. It was one of these times where 
I said, we wish we weren't charging by the hour, though we had a percentage of the equity pool. <laughs> and uh, they ultimately got bought by a major private equity firm. And we just had a chance to speak there the other day. And she's loving it. She thinks they're great partners. And when it works well, it, it really can work uh, very well. Well, that's that's one of the reasons why um, uh, I hesitate to say in public, but I'm going to say here that I'm in love with you guys. So, <laughs> well, thank you. It's mutual. Um, yeah, I would just to add to what Michael said um, on the private equity side. I, I think what we see is a lot of CEOs uh, who are successful have already taken money off the table, so it's a chance to really score a home run, hit a home run with their equity, uh, but not worry about sort of the year-over-year cash comp- compensation. Right. So it's it's a different stress for them. They're focused on liquidity events and getting the company either to an IPO or to another sale, to potentially another private equity buyer, um, and looking sort of in a five- to seven-year horizon, whereas, as Michael was saying, they don't have to worry about the next quarterly report, earnings report. And uh, so it's a very different dynamic with it, with its own uh, Keeping the eye stresses. on the ball. And it's, but it's, it also involves, um, are you willing to be there for the, the five- to seven-year haul? And some of the executives who might be approaching retirement age uh, don't necessarily want to mm-hmm. go through that whole process again. It's a different life cycle in the CEO and, and quite frankly, in the board's understanding of who they have at the helm. So... Thank you very much, both Michael and Henry. It has been a pleasure spending time with you both. Thank you. And I look forward to doing this again real soon. Uh, We'll have to find an interesting topic. Oh, we have lots of interesting topics, believe me. It has been a pleasure, and thank you for joining us here at The Boardroom's Best. We'll see you soon. Take care. This podcast was brought to you with the support of Resources Global Professionals, the company that delivers intellectual capital on demand to the world's most recognized companies and corporate leaders, RGP. Resources Global, the experts you want to call when you need experience to solve your business problems. www.rgp.com.